When I was a kid, my grandmother used to make this dish, kofta and kibe. It's basically ground meat with certain Middle Eastern spices, and there's more to it than that, but since you can't taste the real thing right here, right now, just trust me, it's yummy. It wasn't a special occasion dish or anything like that. It was just in the repertoire of delicious things that would come out of her kitchen. It's a Middle Eastern dish, but my grandmother, she's Colombian through and through. Fast forward to 2022, and my mom makes the dish for me. And I started to wonder how these Colombian women, who have never been anywhere near the Middle East, were making this Middle Eastern dish. Then, I go to a taco truck near my house called Tacos Árabes, which means Arab tacos. They are delicious, y'all. I'm talking juicy tacos in a pita instead of a tortilla. It's genius. And this got me thinking. These dishes that we eat from all over the world have these incredibly unique stories— Food is never as simple as we think, because as humans migrate, they bring their food with them, and as cultures mix, so do the culinary traditions. And so with me and the, and the research I do, it always begins first with people, and then food, and food ways being an expression of the genius of the people. The genius of people like my grandmother. This, by the way, is Stephen Alvarez, my guest today. I live in Jackson Heights, Queens, originally from Safford, Arizona, and I'm an associate professor of English at St. John's University. But it's not just English that Steve teaches. He also teaches a taco literacy course. Yes, taco literacy. Where was this when I was in college? A class that teaches how much we can learn about a people through their food and culture. That's where his real passion lies. Today, Steve and I talk tacos and how special they are. I mean, this dude knows a lot about the culture and history behind food. And trust me when I tell y'all, this episode is going to make you hungry. The taco left unexamined is not worth eating. That's an adaption from Socrates. (laughs) You'd be so proud. (laughs) Come on. Who else do you know who can bring in Socrates in a conversation about tacos? Steve was incredible to talk to. And after this quick break, we're going to get into the history of tacos why it's important to embrace the blending of cultures through food, and of course, a little more Socrates. My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Here we go, y'all. I dedicate this episode to my grandma, Maria Carolina Rivera. Love you, mamita. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. We're back with taco literacy professor Steve Alvarez. If we were together in Queens right now, 
Uh, where would you take me to get a taco, and what would you order? Just one taco? Because we have to start at several places. We'd probably start, well, it depends. I think we'd probably have to start in Junction Boulevard or work our way down to 74th and just stay on Roosevelt. And on there, there's five or six, seven, depending, you know, different regions. But I say there's so many tacos, why just settle for one? But we can settle on an area, and that way you can just stay on the seven train. And I think you'd be all right. But some of the highlights right now, one of the most famous tacos is a taco de Bidia. Bidialandia, this is the beef Bidia, sort of Tijuana so style. So good, Bidia. Yeah, yeah, this is the one taking New York by storm. But it actually, you know, it comes from Southern California, made its way over here, but now it's our own thing too. And it, it started in Queens, that, that trend at least. So I think that's one of the highlights. Uh, I had Bidia for the first time in, in Mexico in uh, Valle de Guadalupe. Hmm, all right. You know, it's different. And Mexico is different for different, you know, regionally the traditions and also the meat. Sometimes people will be, uh, it'll be borrego. Sometimes it'll be chivo. Uh, in this case, this is the beef birria. So this one is more specific to Tijuana. But really, it's the same idea of slow cooking the meat. Um, have it as more like a like a, a soup kind of taco, right? Usually it comes in a soup, but this one is a taco that's like just really, you know, just overflowing at the edge with the juices, which is so delicious. But anyway, this is the one, you know, it's uh, became kind of the Instagram taco because in California, <laughs> it was so beautiful to see that thing dipping and that became like this big trend. And right now it's probably the, well, probably the mo- one of the more popular tacos hitting around the country for terms of taco trends. I feel like I missed out because I was uh, born and raised in Queens. And if I'm being honest, I don't think I ever had a taco like as a kid. I spent a lot of time eating like Dominican and Colombian food. And I spent so much time in Jackson Heights, and you're telling me all these great tacos are there, but I didn't, I didn't have that. Was it there? You think when I was a kid? Well, I don't know when. When were you there? I guess that would be the question. I was a kid in the '90s. Well, you know, there, but not as as present as it is now. And really, that's when the Mexican population was really starting to expand after the post '90s. I mean, really to explode, where so much so that uh, the Mexican population was projected to surpass the Dominican and Puerto Rican population wow. in terms of growth. And that's when the food started going. Through. I mean, I think I think right now, because what was going on in terms of that generational shift and also people migrating in New York City, is why we're having the Mexican food renaissance we're having. Because it's the next generation. But I should point out, this is also when Mexicanos started arriving in places like North Carolina. Kentucky and the Midwest, New York City wasn't one of those destinations that Mexicanos were arriving at. But fortunately, they have for the taco situation. <laughs> and also fortunately for the for the for the betterment of the city. You know, I think this is also the more diversity we have in New York City, this is how we learn about people uh through our neighbors, but also through our food. And that's also makes us what's a such a great culinary place that we live in. That is what I felt as a child. And I've always said, like, if if I have a kid, I, I want to raise it in that city because the city taught me more than any book and the different flavors and the different environments and different people. Uh, and so I, I did not have those tacos as a kid, but I've had them now. Uh, you teach a class on taco literacy. What does this mean to you? I mean, the way I'm talking about tacos right now, it kind of gets to the heart of it, really thinking about it in terms of uh, first people. And through the people, we understand more about the food. But what happens oftentimes with so-called ethnic food is it becomes decontextualized from the people who produce the food. And this way, you can kind of see uh, sort of like Mexican fast food as being exemplary of this. And I'm thinking of like the stereotypical taco, the default taco is the Taco Bell hard shell taco. That thing. That's the one that's the mass-produced one that was born in Southern California, but also was appropriated from Mexican folks who were making tacos dorados across the street. And so anyway, that, that taco is also the one that gets exported around the world in a popular imagination and becomes even the emoji, the taco emoji. Huh. 
at the same time, though, there's also an understanding that that's just one variety of tacos. And tacos are regional. They move with people. And to really understand the stories about tacos is you have to understand, especially Mexican people, that standardized Taco Bell taco is decontextualized in the history of struggle and also the people who make it. And so with me and the, and the research I do, it always begins first with people and then food and foodways being an expression of the genius of the people. What they're dealt with in terms of cards, where they live. This is where, for example, uh, Mexican immigrants in California started introducing like uh, iceberg lettuce into tacos and, and cheddar cheese. And so you, you know, part of this is uh, we start to see as people move, they bring food, the foods change. But the food still carries the dignity of the people who brought the food in the first place. So my, my taco literacy for me is always first about bringing food, number one, and then the stories related to food and people. And so that's where uh, you, you can look at a taco, but when you look at a taco deeper and you understand the connection to the people, it's way more delicious. Hey, beautiful. What cracked your heart open and you said, this is my, this is my journey, this is my, my thing? Well, I mean, you're talking about Hicano. I grew up Mexican from you know, Southwest and... I'm the first one in my family to go to college, and I don't know how to put it. it. Just, I mean, Mexican food was always there, and sometimes it used to be things I would even be ashamed of. I'm talking like taking bean bottles to school, and kids used to tease me when I was really young. Mm. Later on, they got jealous of me because they realized my food is actually really good, <laughs> you know. And they started trying to change me their food. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> don't even front. Uh, but then, you know, for me, um, growing up in Arizona, sometimes it was hard to find things that that I could look up to be proud of. I said Mexicano. Because it is the borderlands, it was the place where you were always taught to be ashamed and even to hate yourself. And that was colonizing to me, I think, all throughout my education. So much so that where I grew up, you know, I didn't have any Mexican teachers or Mexican-American teachers. It would be people maybe who were the bus driver or the custodian, but never people who looked like me. And that's always a constant reminder, like, what, we're not good enough to be the front of the classroom? And that stuff gets drilled in. And, and fortunately enough for me, I was able to go to college, meet some great mentors and things, and... Long story short, I came to get my PhD in New York City, and I did some research about uh, Mexican folks and after-school program and how they were helping kids with their homework. And the families, mothers especially, used to bring me food all the time. They bring mm. me tamales, rice, arroz con leche. And also, I was a starving grad student, I loved it. <laughs> and I didn't catch it at the time, but that food was also saying, you know, I was helping their kids with their homework in English. Uh, going for several years doing this kind of work. And uh, the food was more than like, you know, we see you're hungry. It's more like, thank you for seeing my kid. We see you. I made these with my hands. And this is an expression of care and confianza. You know, it's reciprocal. It's built over time. You're part of, you're one of us now, right? You're eating with us. And so that that lesson wasn't really drilled into me. I moved, I moved to Kentucky and it was the same thing. You help, you help the, the children of people who are immigrants and they love you. And they're going to show you they love you with the food. And mm -hmm. that's been my experience everywhere I've gone. And when I started teaching this stuff, I was started initially trying to teach classes about immigration to mostly white students, and it was rough. Uh, it was about immigration to Kentucky uh, until we started going through food. Once we took them to get some tacos, all of a sudden they were so interested in figuring out where those tacos came from, tacos de cabeza. I didn't even heard of this stuff. They wanted to learn more Spanish. They want to know about corn. I realized, ah, the best way to humanize this was through food because food was something they already loved, but they had disconnected the people from the food. So here's my job. Let's bring it back together so they can see that you can't love the food if you don't love us. You're talking about eating as like a spiritual experience or like a very <laughs> a very Buddhist mindset of oneness. You know, I, I mean, really, once I started getting more into Mesoamerican mythologies, that's where it was always at. I mean, we're people of the corn. It's always, it became first what corn is where we came from. Corn was initially the cosmovision. It's the thing that links us always because corn could not come without us, and we could not arrive without corn. And once I started getting into some of these ideas about uh, indigeneity, 
with the land and food as an ecosystem, it, ha- it does have a kind of oneness to it. But it's a kind of oneness of understanding our place and connection to the land. But it's also a challenge to some of these agroeconomic models of like monocrops and, and other ways of food exploitation. So we try to take it there, but also understanding there's so many philosophies and ways of thinking about food. It's just, it's so mind boggling. I never realized there was so, how, how deep food was. And I'm so thankful because it also, coming back to my story, got me to be so proud to be said Mexicano. And also realizing, especially when I talk to other kids, uh, young folks, Mexicanos, we can talk about some of these things because uh, if there's something that we're proud of, we're proud of our food. And sometimes where we're taught to hate ourselves, if we can find those those places where we find our strength, it's also where we can see that uh, our families are sometimes that can unite us and bring us back to this culture and the traditions that we carry, even though it's so easy to kind of to lose those along the way. I heard you say that as a kid when you brought those your your home food to school, you felt embarrassed. And I resonate with that, seeing my friends you know, South Asian, Pakistani friends who their moms would make them this food that they've been cooking all day, right? I mean, like, it's incredible, but they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed of the luscious, like, powerful smells that will fill the space that is so much more grand and vibrant than what you can get in any cafeteria. And how you have to, how they had to come to learn to love that smell, love that vibrancy, love those flavors again because assimilation and America will want to strip it from its roots, from its home, from its love. Yeah, you know, I agree. Uh, That kind of food shaming is not uh, something that's unique to what I experience. Other people of color experience this too. And in fact, the other day in class, we talked about this where students were breaking up into groups and talking about food shaming. And one young woman from Jackson Heights, same thing. She was talking about the smell of cumin that would sort of emanate around the class. And I asked her, did anyone ever say it bothered them? And, her, and she said, well, no, but in my mind, I thought I heard them say it bothered me. It's this mm. kind of like double thing that we do about what we think they're going to say, but we it's more self-conscious and, and the extra anxiety that we have just about our food. And so another student was saying, yeah, same thing happened to me. So I begged my mom to give me Lunchables. Those <laughs> mass-produced, like tasteless, like, you, you know, I'm talking about little tasteless, pieces of cheese. smellless. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, but they're like packaged nicely. I guess they are packaged nice for COVID or something. I don't know, right? But anyway... And then I remember asking, you wanted that, and there you, here you had this healthy, nutritious food that was made by your mom, but you wanted that because you wanted to fit in and you knew it wasn't delicious too, right? But there is that pressure, like, why do I want to stand out, especially when you're very young? But as she pointed out, and as you said too, that she, became, she came to love it. She came to say, like, no, this is my mom made this food for me. And it's, you know, whatever that is that turns us at that direction, but it's, Whatever the Lunchable represents in this, I think that's the danger. If we got to steer him back, bring him back from the Lunchable. <laughs> Even though the Lunchable's very American, no doubt. Yeah. So I wanted, this whole inspiration for this episode came from this L.A. taco that I love, Tacos Árabes. Do you know this kind of taco? Oh, yeah. Can you describe the components of Tacos Árabes? I think the best way I could describe it is more like you would have the idea of like a pita taco. What a beautiful thing that is. It's just, it's just basically everything that's a taco, but a little bit bigger with a nice tortilla and, and a beautiful, um, uh, really tasty, like a chipotle barbecue sauce. Uh, usually for the Mexican folks, we'll use pork. Traditionally, historically, I think the taco, the taco arabe might have been more lamb as well. Uh, but I think the more foundational way we think about it now is pork and also thinking later on it becomes like the so-called grandfather of the uh, taco al pastor with the rotisserie style. but I love the tortilla. It feels like a hug. Like a hug oh, on my yeah. perfectly cooked meat. <laughs> That's a good, a good tortilla is like a nice hug. I like that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because <laughs> a bad tortilla gets too, uh, it disappears too quick. 
You know, oh, you need the hug. You need the you need the to be held. Uh, I want to be held close. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I love about it is the hug quality, but also the meeting of cultures, right? Because I know the pita is not traditionally, or in my opinion, when I first had this taco, the pita was not traditionally what I associated with any Mexican taco. Um, and I associated all all masa, right? Corn, flour, maybe even a burrito, which is still thinner. Uh, so I looked up the history of these tacos. Do you think you can walk us through it? Sure, yeah. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. It has a, well, as every taco, it has layers. And this one's kind of interesting because you can start first with the tortilla, and I think that's probably the first layer. But the same kind of story is as people move, they bring their food, and over time, the foods mix across generations. They take on their own meaning. They become their own thing. And so this could be like the Middle Eastern contribution to what we understand as taco culture in Mexico. What time period did Middle Eastern folks immigrate to Mexico? And why'd they go there? Sure. I think at at this time, the larger situation was there was a a genocide that was happening in Armenia, in the Levant. Uh, This was, I think, the beginning of the 20th century. And kind of like we stand right now, about 100 years later, uh, was mass migration of people who were starving. There was war. And as they were moving, of course, they were bringing their foods. Well, there was a... Also, a significant uh, amount of people that moved to uh, South America. So a lot of Colombian folks who had from roots from, let's say, Turkey and the Levant. Uh, a lot of folks from Syria and Iraq moved to Mexico. Uh, Carlos Slim, the wealthiest man in Mexico, his family came from, I believe, uh, the Levant, Lebanon area. Um, Sama Hayek. Hayek is a Turkish name. Hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of folks who came from the Middle East and also affected, you know, a lot of folks who came from the the elite as well. So they also brought like elements of their culture, some people who were uh, able to make, you know, bring restaurants and the like. Well, there was a significant uh, amount of folks who made their way to Puebla. So the story goes. And in Puebla, some folks say the folks came from Syria, other folks say from Iraq, but I want to say somewhere in the general Middle East of Levant, we'll just say in general. The story is uh, one family was uh, specializing in making their bread and another family had the meat and was slicing it on the rotisserie, what we understand is like the shawarma kind of style, which you would recognize as al pastor. But also if you go to, let's say, a kebab place or a Turkish place, you'd recognize a very similar. You see the same thing. Rotisserie meat. Same thing. So that came with the immigrants too. So it was the barbecue technology and it was also (laughs) bringing it back. Basically, it was the same thing. Like, as you said before, like uh, there's nothing quite like the warm hug of like fresh meat and something (laughs) that's wrapped up, whether it's a dumpling or whether it's anything, bread, I don't care, pizza, I don't care. And so uh, the story is, as they were, you know, the the two families came together to make this union of this taco. I believe this is in the the show Taco Chronicles, if y'all want to check this one out. Um, A woman who was walking by uh, saw what was going on. She didn't know what to call it. So she said, give me one of those tacos out of this. In the literacy of, of a taco, how do you teach people to read what possible religion it comes from or the food they had access to or their class like how does that reading begin well first i would say there's there's two ways there's there's the 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 food and language and there's the food as it exists as a thing in front of you so on one hand like reading the thing in front of you would mean to do some like close observation and giving some really attentive detail i mean on one hand there's a beautiful taco you want to eat it but it's ask you to kind of study it at least look at it maybe ask a few questions uh, this is like the difference of, say, like going to a restaurant and doing a little bit of research before you go there or even researching the food before you eat it. Uh, but looking at the tortilla, is it flour? Is it corn? What does that mean in terms of going off on history? That's one thing. Okay. On the other side, reading it as language because language and food go together because they're also parts of the genius expression of human beings and people. So with the food, let's say, for example, chocolate. 
also quite delicious. Uh, chocolate comes from the Nahuatl chocolato. So the root of the word and where it comes from has Aztec roots or roots that roots from Nahuatl. And so when we think about roots of words, sometimes we think about roots that come from Europe, from Latin and from Greek. But there's words for foods that come from the hemisphere here, and those roots are indigenous. And so even beginning with the language itself, we can trace where the roots of the words go to and also see where, for example, chili peppers begin first in Mexico and find their way in cuisines all over the world. I mean, think of all the delicious food that has such spicy chili peppers and what they would be without chili peppers, Sichuan food or Indian food. And those peppers first come from this hemisphere. So part of what's really beautiful about this is when you trace food in the language, you can also see how it moves, but it's always predicated first on people. The way Steve talks about paying attention to your food makes me feel guilty for how often I just scarf something down on my way to or from somewhere. But there is one experience I can think of that feels related. Silent retreats. I've done a couple of these and I gotta say, Eating can be one of the most exciting parts of the day when you are not speaking. You're so attentive to everything that once the food hits your mouth, wow. You can't help but think about the little details in every single morsel you eat. Now, I don't eat with that much intention every day because like all of us, I know we all have a bunch of shit to do. But eating is a very important part of our day. So maybe it's worth it to take just an extra minute hell, maybe just a second, to acknowledge the people whose culture made that food. All right, y'all, we're going to take a little break. And when we get back, Steve and I dive into how exactly Arabic food made its way into Latin America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. We're back with taco literacy expert Steve Alvarez. So I told y'all about that dish my grandma made. It is what inspired me to do this episode about tacos and blended food traditions. I wanted to tell Steve about the dish, find out if he'd ever heard of Latin American folks like my grandma making Arabic dishes. When I was a kid, my Jackson Heights grandma, she used to cook, uh, she's Colombian, she used to cook uh, kafta and kibe. 
And this is like uh, ground meat uh, mashed together with different spices. And I didn't think anything of it as a kid. And I now know it is a Middle Eastern dish. Uh, like I said, my grandma's from Colombia. How do you think she learned this dish? I never got to ask her, you know, like uh, rest her soul. But uh, how do you think she came to learn it? Oh, my gosh. Well, the, the, this history of this one is so similar. Uh, I started thinking about actually uh, tacos árabes because it actually, I think, theoretically comes with the same group of people that were bringing the same kind of food, the same kind of technology. So they were bringing that. But you got to even go back further in this because uh, cinnamon, raisins, ground meat, or, or things that are kind of green olives as well, or things that are kind of hallmarked for Spanish food. But that goes back even further because that has to do with the, uh, the Muslim occupation of Spain. So this is where, for example, like my last name, Alvarez, has some like Arabic roots from way back when. Uh, and so you can see like way back before, Spanish people were already mixed anyway. They were uh, mixed with religion. There was Jewish folks too. The elements of these Jewish foodways and things and, and Arab foodways and you know, so European foodways or whatever, they all Christian so-called. They moved into Americas. And then with this, they start mixing together. But also then you have different waves of people who are coming from the Middle East as well and bringing some of those similar flavors. They arrive in Colombia. They arrive in Brazil. They arrive all over the Americas. Uh, I believe Garcia Marquez's family, Shakira's family as well. And so what it is is folks bring their food too and the food becomes a part of the culture. And with part of the culture, sometimes it ends up changing just a little bit, but there's still the hallmarks where you can follow back with the language and you can also see through the food uh, a little bit of the history because you may see the food itself, but the food will tell you more about the people and how it got there. Uh, well, put it this way. Sometimes there's a search for people trying to find so-called authentic, whatever that is. I think that's a fruitless task. Instead of trying to find the origin, the origin trying to be something that's unique, if we look about the, the beauty of mixture and that what's right in front of us, we can always see, like, who cares where it came from? Just know that it's here. Know it came from somewhere, and that story is complicated, but also be able to appreciate diversity rather than trying to find some kind of purity. Because I think if you... I don't know if you saw, if you search for purity, you, you fall into the same trap of people who are trying to fall into like elements of white supremacy and some bullshit like that. I wouldn't get away with that. No way. Beauty of mixture. Yeah. Take that home at the end of the day. That's right. <laughs> Food can reveal to you the delusion of purity. Oof. I mean, you know... <sighs> I, 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 so I, I think whatever idea of what it could be a pure, pure food in general is complicated. It would be more like a theoretical thing. And to say that like, because uh, it has to do like if, if somebody says, oh, an authentic taco has to be like at a place where it's like it costs $2 and maybe they're playing a novella on the screen and nobody's speaking, <laughs> nobody's speaking English, right? But there's a kind of authenticity that is even the Taco Bell taco because it's born and bred in the United States and it's its own thing too. I mean, to be able to appreciate them at their different levels, but also understand that there, there's definitely one that has, um, uh, there's one that comes with an army and a, of, of advertising and high-end industry behind it. And there's one that comes from people. And sometimes it's people you can even talk to while they make your taco. I was just in the Dominican Republic and I saw a huge uh, Chinatown in Santo Domingo, right? I got some great fried rice with tostones. And when I was a kid, pretty sure in Jackson Heights, a spot that's still there, I used to go to a uh, Cuban Chinese spot. And I remember these uh, these Chinese cats speaking better Spanish than I could ever speak, uh, making incredible like wonton soup slash vaca frita uh, at the same time. And so we know that there's the Middle Eastern influence. What about other influences in Latin America? Definitely. I mean, uh, well, 
like you said, Chinese folks have gone all over the world. There's definitely that part as well. Uh, you, th- you think about just all the different waves of migration, for example, Italian folks that came to Argentina and Chile and Uruguay as well, uh, the Jewish folks too. The Italian folks taught Argentinians the, because uh, me and my lady, on the 26th of every month, we make gnocchi, which is an Argentinian oh, tradition, yeah, yeah. because it's towards the end of the month and it's low on, you know, rent's coming up. So it's one of the cheaper, <laughs> more filling things to make. Uh, and we had read that that came from from Italy for them. Huh, I didn't know that. I mean, even that, I mean, things like this where you see where different folks bring different traditions and they maybe even carry that tradition over and may not even need to sometimes, but they do it more just out of practice. Uh, how put it this way, that the waves of migration haven't stopped. They're still going. Right now, probably the, the some of the more profound um, mixing that's happening in Mexico are the Haitian migrants and the, the plight they have on the border, but also places like Tijuana and, and kind of... Uh, the food that's emerging there by necessity. And these are folks who are refugees. And you know, to think about migration on one hand is to think, of course, it's beautiful, the mixture is great, but there's also the harsh side to you that are people who are being pushed out out of violence and they have to make do. And it's the same story that happened to the folks from the Levant 100 years ago. It's happening to folks in Syria now. I'm talking like little kids and families going in the boats to try to cross the water and so on in the Mediterranean. So these are folks in dire straits. And I believe right now it's the most migrants in world history since the Second World War. So these were really, really bad times, but uh, folks are resilient with their food. Uh, there's stories of, of folks enslaved Africans who brought the seeds of okra in their hair, uh, knowing that these were the things that were going to sustain us, sustain them as they moved to the other side, wherever they were going to go. And so the food can give us hope. Uh, the food can give us a sense of liberation when we unify in this way, but also really understanding that, I don't know, I guess the, the bigger picture for me is that it always comes down to people. And hopefully, if you get to the point of where people are at the first part, we can see that all these elements of food from our farming to the way we cook and everything else is an expression of what makes us great as human beings. There's a fabulous Brazilian restaurant in downtown LA called Wood Spoon. And the chef founder calls it Wood Spoon because she always says, right now, there are billions of people sowing love with a wood spoon. Billions of people using the wood spoon to, to give their love and to nourish with love. And... I, I see a lot of that in this single taco. No, I like that. I, uh. Why do you think people, uh, maybe especially Americans, love tacos so much? You said a lot of it, but like, if you had to sum it up, well, you know, I always say like, well, I wish, I wish they would love us as much as they love tacos. But you can't <laughs> love the tacos if you don't love us. Amen. But I mean, number one is because they're delicious. It's just they're appealing because they're a food that you can eat standing up with your hand. They, they, I mean, they just they kind of go good with everything. Uh, sometimes it's. Sometimes pe- people put more emphasis on what's in the taco, but to really get to the fundamentals, it has to be the tortillas, number one. You got to have a good tortilla. You can, pretty put, you, know, you can put a lot of good stuff in a, good, in a solid tortilla, but it, if the tortilla is no good, you're going to have problems. Uh, and then also like a fresh salsa and so on. But, you know, I guess for me, the, um, I think folks love tacos because uh, a taco is just meant to be loved. That's just all there is. <laughs> Very scientific. What is your favorite taco? You know, I get asked this a lot, and I guess, you know, my family, we come from Sonora, Sinaloa, so we're Nortenos, like cowboys uh, from that area. And my, my, my father's family comes from Sinaloa, and there's this kind of uh, pork, it's kind of like vinegar chili pork called chilorio, and I really love that. And that's usually on a flour tortilla with a little bit of uh, fried pinto beans, um, and then you put the chilorio on it, and it's, uh, yeah, similar to a little bit like birria, but a little bit more tangy. But that's one I like. Some folks don't like it because it's tangy, but it's one that reminds me of um, food growing up. When I went to Oaxaca 
pretty recently I was sort of transformed because of their pride in their food. I mean, everywhere from we did Oaxaca City to the beach to the mountains, there was such pride in their land and in their food. And their pride injected the food with something you cannot cook cook it in, you know? Uh, and I tasted that pride. And I think what I hope to sort of take away from this conversation is sitting with food, you know, sitting with the culture it came from, the stories it came from, the love it came from, and 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 finding that that pride, so it can affect me as well. Uh, have you had an experience recently where you stumbled into a cross cultured food, you know, that you didn't know about? Well, you know, I think uh, it happens especially in the classes I teach. So I'm teaching taco literacy right now, um, but I also ask students to do projects where they focus on their food ways and their families. So this has always been really interesting because students bring in things from their families at class and talk about some of their traditions. And the other day was kind of interesting because one student was speaking about her tradition, she's Italian-American, of sauce in her family, trying to figure out where that family recipe came from because she realized that her grandmother is not Italian, uh, but her grandmother is the one who has a tradition for this sauce. And like it was sort of this thing where she married an Italian guy, so she had to learn how to make the sauce of her, uh, her mother-in-law Anyway, so it's getting so interesting. We started asking these questions about where this sauce came from. And then she also called it gravy, which I thought was kind of mm. interesting. In these classes, we have these moments because the classes are in, in St. John's. We're in Queens. They're diverse, like faces of Queens. And everybody has their own food traditions, and they bring these in. And so that, that was, you know, for a student, uh, you know, she's white. For her to think like, oh, wait, there's this part about my ethnicity for me to be able to connect to and learn and actually even stuff that's actually going to happen not in English for me to recover something. There's a sense of uh, of reclaiming something that's lost that I think is so valuable. And then to hear where other students who are coming from, especially for her to hear the student who really wanted Lunchables. I mean, I can see the puzzled look on her face. Like, why wouldn't she not want your family's food? And so for, to see them have conversations is really beautiful. I love to go through Mexican food because I love to bring in my own biography and talk about how important it was for me to find that and be able to reclaim those aspects of my identity. And so, uh, you know, once we start getting the food, though, it becomes a really, uh, really cool moment. In a better world right now, I'm usually bringing food to class, but right now they won't let me because of COVID stuff. Uh, but what I will say, when I do bring food to class, things like tamales and sometimes tacos, my class evaluations go through the roof. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Most liked teacher, easily. Uh, what do you think the next trend in tacos is going to be? Predict it oh, now. You, you know, I think right now what's kind of pretty popular is mariscos, so seafood, particularly the stuff that's coming from Sinaloa or um, Tijuana. And so... This has been like a really big tradition in the Southwest and catching on, but I think I see that turn, turning more to New York. And so what I hope would be really cool is if we get some like New York oyster mariscos that's going to happen over here of like, mm. oh, because you can imagine some like Long Island, oh, I don't know anything. I, I think I think mariscos is going to be where it's at and it's already happening. There's some really cool places um, that are in Queens too that are doing some really great stuff, but um, people who are doing stuff of like swordfish tacos, um, really had a swordfish taco two nights oh, ago. <laughs> yeah, octopus tacos. Like, think, oh my gosh! So this stuff is so delicious, and I think that's going to be something that, um, for especially for New Yorkers, to catch another prospect of uh, Mexican identity through elements of like Mexican seafood, which is also its own kind of really cool food tradition. Uh, selfishly, do you have a favorite LA taco spot? Oh man, uh, you can top three me. You can give me one. 
you know, I guess I got to go all the way. LA Taco, man. Like, I, I, you know, hold on. Man. Don't rush. No. I got to think this about is, it. I might have to go to my this map. This is where I'm I going after go. work. Oh, man. I'm have to go to my map here because, I, you know, I've been there for a lot. I think this place called Guisados. Oh, Guisados is fire. Yeah. Yeah, that place because I remember they were like, they had one little taco sampler that was really great, but everything there was so incredible. I just remember being like very, very happy. Uh, like, really, really happy. Next time you come <laughs> back, I'm going to take you to a spot called Tire Shop. Hmm. All right. Tire Shop is oh. is my is my spot. And I another also, place. Yeah. Burritos La Palma. Oh Burritos yeah, I've had La that Palma. too. So I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> into this. And my yeah. lady and I, we we have like we hit a taco joint a week. Uh, oh shoot. Yeah, we we have a list going. Um, oh, I've man. had Burritos La Palma, and also another spot is uh, Tacos Via Costa. I think I might. You know. That's a stand. That's a stand in Highland Park. So whoever's listening, Mar hit them up. Mariscos, Mariscos Jalisco, I remember, was the truck, right? That I know was that one truck I too, yeah. Yeah, that one I remember. So that those are the Mariscos that are slowly catching on over here. But that truck, oh, man. I remember being, I haven't been in LA for a while, but I had my little taco tour too. And I remember being at that place and also being so happy. Like, oh, that was a nice place. That was a good day. <laughs> that was a good day. Steve, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I'm really excited. This is really cool. It's fun. I love talking about tacos with people. <laughs> thank you again to Steve for coming through. And thank you for listening. This conversation with Steve is so special to me because it showed the depth of the connection between humanity and the food we eat. I really love this episode. And I hope you took away something meaningful that you can remember next time you're eating some food from a culture that isn't your own. Especially if it's some tacos. Shit, I'm gonna go get some tacos right now. Maybe Guisados. Nah. Maybe El Russo. Nah. Probably tacos via Corona. Anyway, I'll figure it out. It's LA. I'm hungry. I'll see y'all next week. Peace. Next on Brown Enough... If you can like sum it up in a sentence, the DR celebrates its independence from Haiti, not from Spain. Why do you think that is? Anti-blackness. <laughs> Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. This episode was produced by Baudelaire. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Kevin Tidmarsh. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe, y'all, or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. And if you got a minute, leave us a review. A nice one. It goes a long way. Thanks. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. 
Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.